for that. Always a joy to listen to her sing. Luke chapter 10. Good morning once again. I want to invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 with me. Find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Go to the 10th chapter. We're going to be finishing this chapter in the life and ministry of Jesus with an account that most of us are familiar with, and that's the account of Martha and Mary. It's only in Luke's gospel that we have this particular account, but it's not the only record that we have of these two ladies. Now, this may have been the first time that Jesus visited these two, and it would have become a home that was frequented frequented by Jesus again and again. And because of that, we get to learn quite a bit more about Martha and Mary. It's really just a short, simple account. It's just comprising of five verses, but it has extremely relative and profound applications for us today. So I want to begin right away by reading our text this morning straight away so we can understand what's going on here. Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 38 again. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. God's holy, inerrant Word says this, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taking, taken away from her. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word, we just pray that it would speak to our hearts and fan the flames of love for you once again. Help our ears to be attentive and our minds to be sharp. And most of, Lord, most of all, Lord, let what we hear today help conform us into the image of your Son. We thank you for this time and this time we can gather together to learn more about you and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may or may not have heard me say this before, but I think that in America, it is probably one of the absolutely most dangerous places to be a Christian. Now that might sound to you like a provocative statement and maybe a little bit confusing to some of you, but it is nonetheless true. And the danger that I'm talking about isn't the fact that Christians around the world are facing the very real, the very visceral, the very palpable threat of attack and persecution from those who hate Christ, who hate the truth, and who hate God. Persecution and martyrdom has been with us as Christians since Christ himself was crucified. Stephen was stoned to death and martyred in Acts chapter 7. Peter, James, and Andrew all crucified. 
James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. James, the half-brother of our Lord, and Philip were stoned to death. Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, Timothy, Paul, all martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ predicted that that indeed would happen if you would read John 15 and 16. The Roman Empire had declared war on Christians for about the first 300 years, and they brutally killed and persecuted countless men, women, and children, sometimes raising and burning entire cities because the bulk of the inhabitants were identified with Jesus Christ. Then in 1997... And an article in the New York Times appeared, and it reported that more Christians have been killed for their faith in the 20th century alone than the entire 19 centuries since the death of Christ combined. And to be sure, we are starting to see some of that glimpses of that violent outburst of Christian persecution in America in the 21st century. Most recently, we saw it in Roseburg, Oregon. But that's not what makes America so dangerous of a place for you and I to live in. Why is it so dangerous to live in America as a Christian? If they're not killing Christians so much here like they are in, say, Syria and Pakistan and all those things, then how can it be so dangerous? What's so dangerous is that as as Americans, we seem to have an innumerable amount of things that keep us distracted from God more than ever. It's not necessarily the threat of the physical violence, but it's the threat of spiritual violence, and it comes in various ways and various means. We are rapidly and increasingly spending more and more of our time worshiping our various idols that we have than we are spending in the worship and communion of our Lord. For example, a recent survey I saw showed that 23% of Facebook users check that account five or more times a day, and that includes the group that checks it 11 or more times a day. The average user checks in about every 90 minutes. In another survey of over 7,400 18 to 44-year-old Americans, 80% of the people said that the very first thing that they do when they wake up in the morning is they get on their smartphone. 80%. Apparently, we are quick to rise to Facebook, but we are slow to rise to God. The Entertainment Software Association reported that those who play video games spend an average of 11 and a half hours per week playing video games online or with their friends. And in case you think that's something that's relegated to just teenage boys and girls, the average age of a gamer is now 35 years of age. The American worker is working longer and longer and more hours per week than they did just 10 years ago. And that trend is going to continue to increase. America is now the leader among industrialized nations in the average number of hours per week that we work. And and if you're an American worker who uses a smartphone for your job, you are now connected to your employment in some fashion an average of 13.5 hours a day. And it seems that 
having a smartphone creates this kind of always-on mentality and expectation by our employers. Huge fitness facilities. They're popping up all across the nation at a rate of 1,000 per year. And membership in health clubs are up 10 million people in the last 10 years. The quaint little town of Marysville, Ohio, now has as many fitness facilities as they do pizza shops. Okay? There are just countless activities that are clamoring for our time and attention. There's innumerable amount of ways in America that we can be distracted by God. The world is telling us that in order to have value and worth as a person, you need to have a boatload of Twitter followers and you need to have a bunch of likes for everything you put on Facebook. The world is telling us that we need to have the latest and the greatest smartphones with all of the apps and all of the connectivity that's humanly possible. The world is telling us that we need to work our brains out and climb that corporate ladder so that we can buy more of the world's goods and more treasures. The world is telling us that you need to have the same physique as a beauty model or a bodybuilder if you want to be truly valued by society. All those magazines that are in the checkout lines at Walmart and Meijer and wherever you are, those are books of lies. We need to look to the book of truth. God's word says that you have been created in his image and you are fearfully and wonderfully made and your value comes from him and not from Facebook or Instagram. God's word calls you and me to be sober-minded and to be ready because you don't know that the day or the hour that the Son of Man is coming and instead of wasting countless hours of mindless video game playing. God's word tells me and you to store up our treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or thieves can break in and steal rather than working out your brains for a bigger retirement portfolio or a bigger house or a nicer car. And God's word says that bodily discipline, your fitness and exercise is only little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for this present life and the life to come. Beloved of God, the reason it's so dangerous for you and I to be Christians in America is because there are so many things that are screaming for your attention and it is waging war against your soul. There are so many things that are telling you that this or that is more important than your time with God. What is the priority of your day when you wake up? What is the first thing your mind runs to when your eyes open up in the morning? How much of your time, from day to day, does your mind drift into thinking about the immense magnitude of the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of our Heavenly Father? As you are laying down and you're waking up or you're going about your way, how much of your thought life is dwelling upon the great glorious gospel and the holiness of God? A.W. Tozer once wrote, The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Ultimately, what you think about God drives every aspect of your life. The higher your thoughts about God, the higher and loftier will be the worship of Him in every aspect of your life. 
The higher your view of God, the higher and holier living you will lead. But a low view of God will lead to superficial worship and low living. Everything in your life hinges upon how high you view the sovereignty of God. Everything in your life is oriented around how faithful you believe that God is. Every aspect of your life is driven by how immense you view the love of God. Because what you think about God drives every aspect of your life. It affects what you spend your time on. It affects how you spend your money. It affects your view of humanity. It affects what you commit your life to. And it affects the priorities of your day. How great is the God that you claim to worship? And if He is that great, how come He is not more of a priority in your day? What is it? that is hindering your worship and increasing in all knowledge and wisdom that comes from Him through His Word. The second half of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, tells us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It is the sin that entangles us. It's sin that prevents us from running the race set before us. That's pretty easy to understand, right? It's pretty basic. But it's not just sin. That's not the only thing that entangles you and prevents you from running. John Piper said of this verse that it's not just sin that we're to lay aside, but it's every other weight that gets in your way. Don't just ask if something in your life is just a sin, because that is absolutely the lowest question you can ask. But what you should ask is, does this thing help me run? That's what you should ask. Does it get in your way when you're trying to become more patient and more kind and more gentle and more loving and more pure and more self-controlled? Does it get in your way or does it help you run? That's the question we should be asking. And beloved, there are so many things in America that are getting in our way that we don't even realize that it's waging war against our souls. We don't realize that all those things that we think we need to be a part of and all that stuff in our lives that we think is important and the things that we spend our precious time on is nothing but a shackle and chain that is preventing you from running. But that's why Luke puts this in here for us. That's why it is here in this narrative at the end of chapter 10. That's why Martha and Mary are here for us. Because Luke wants us to make sure that our reader, his readers and us, we understand that we need to keep the main thing, the main thing, as taught by Jesus. And so here we find Jesus Christ in the position of a teacher again in our text this morning, just like he has in the previous accounts of chapter 10. And we see that his primary method of teaching is by correction. We constantly need correction, do we not? And if we would look back in our text of chapter 10, back at the 70 in verse 17, Jesus provides correction to his young disciples that they aren't to be so excited about all that they've been doing, all the demonic exercising, the healings, all those types of things. But in verse 20, he corrects them and say, you should rejoice in what God has done. 
Then in the account of the Good Samaritan, starting in verse 25, the lawyer wants to know how, what he should be doing and to whom. And so Jesus corrects him again about his false pretenses about who his neighbor is and who isn't. Now, what I find fascinating about that account is that Jesus didn't press on to this lawyer on whether or not he was perfectly loving God with all of his heart and his soul and his strength and his mind, because that answer would have surely been no as well. But since he knew the thoughts and intentions of this man's heart, he corrected him on the issue he brought forth about who his neighbor was, because he couldn't even get that part right. But in our account this morning, he once again teaches by a means of correction to a woman that we meet named Martha. Verse 38 in your text there says, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Now, as again, Luke doesn't give this in chronological order here for us, but this could have been one of the very first times that they entered this home. But as I mentioned at the very beginning, we know a little bit more about Martha in this household than what Luke gives to us here. It's almost like a dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, right? He's just giving it to us straight. We do know by way of John 11.1 that this village was a home, and the home was in a town called Bethany. Bethany was just a couple miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's actually on the way to Jericho if you were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, like the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. But it's within walking distance by foot to Jesus' ultimate destination, and that is the cross in Jerusalem. And we also know by way of John 11 that Jesus absolutely loved this family. He loved them dearly. He just enjoyed them, and he stayed with them on more than one occasion. Now, there's no mention of Martha being married, no indication of a husband being around, or Martha being a widow or anything like that. But it wasn't just as if Martha, that, it wasn't just Martha lived in this home. Her sister Mary lived there as well, whom we're introduced to in verse 39. They also had a brother named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus isn't mentioned here in Luke chapter 10, but sometime in the future... Lazarus is going to die. But after several days, Jesus comes to raise him from the dead to display the glory of God through himself. But before going to raise him from the dead, Jesus tells his disciple that they must go and help him because Lazarus is a friend. He had a close friendship, a unique bond with this two sisters and brother. There was a love and a relationship that was unique amongst these siblings and Jesus. And so Martha opens wide the doors to her home and welcomes Jesus and his disciples. She is the one that gets up and takes the initiative to welcome Jesus in. Since in verse 38 it says that it was her home, we can probably assume that she was the oldest of the siblings. And consequently, she probably took on that maternal role in running that household. You might say that Martha was the hostess with the mostess, right? And so at this point, we really can't fault Martha. All seems well for her welcoming in the king of glory into her house. In fact, Romans 12, 13 says that we are to seek to practice hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9 and 10 says that we are to show hospitality to one another. Hospitality is so important that the leaders in the church in 1 Timothy 3 are called to be hospitable, welcoming in others into their home. So this was clearly a vital part 
of Martha's life, and it should be a part of your life as well. And as I mentioned, Martha's sister Mary is introduced to us in verse 39, where it says she had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. So there's a couple of things that we can note about this, and the first one is where Mary is at. It says Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, in the first century Judaism, this was a no-no. You didn't do this. Women were allowed to study the Torah and know the Torah, but they were never allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi. You weren't allowed to do it. They weren't really encouraged or inspected or expected to be a theologian because back in that day, it was kind of the men's job, right, to do that. People had the notion that women really weren't to dig in into the deeper things of God and that it was just for men. But here is Jesus allowing Mary to sit at his feet, allowing her to soak in the words of life as they flowed from his mouth, helping her to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So many times we're told that Christianity, it's oppressive to women. It's demeaning, right? But just the opposite is true. If you ever wanted another example of the status of women being elevated, here it is. There would be no better place on earth to be than to have a front row seat at the feet of Jesus Christ. This is not the norm, especially in those times and in that culture. And so Jesus allows her to sit before him, to learn from him, to take from him. But the more important thing that we need to note, other than where she is at, is what Mary is doing. She's listening to the words of Jesus. Her attention is focused, and she is riveted on the words of the Master. She's not standing up like the lawyer and trying to justify herself or challenge Jesus, but she's just sitting there and taking in the gracious words which are falling from his lips. She's ready to listen. She's ready to learn. If you ever wanted a model of what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Mary would be your poster child. You could say that Mary was hanging on every word that proceeded from his mouth. Just like Peter described Jesus' words in John 6.68, Mary is listening intently on the words of eternal life which are coming from the mouth of Jesus. Now, as we start to see this account unfold, we might be thinking that this is kind of pitting quietism versus activism against one another. Two extremes that have plagued the church since its beginning in relation to sanctification or how you grow in godliness, and they're still alive and well with us today. But I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that later. Martha welcomes Jesus into her home. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and all seems well. But here comes the rub in verse 40. Verse 40 says, But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Now, if Martha isn't the model for your church's average nursery care worker, I don't know what is, right? Nursery care workers they, at these big mega churches, they get on these monthly rotations. They're all gung-ho. I'm going to serve the kids. I'm on fire. I'm going to watch these little blessings, right, on Sunday mornings so that the parents can go listen to a sermon without being distracted, right? And then what happens? Burnout, right? 
burnout. They get on a monthly rotation. They're like, three months, I'm done. Somebody else get in there. Some churches are even hiring outside help to have them come in and watch their kids for them from people that aren't even members of their church. They're paying for it. But what a tragedy, in all honesty, for these kids. What, with as busy as families are these days, these days, Sunday morning is probably the only time they would have an opportunity to see mom and dad sing to the Lord and pray and to study the word of God. And they miss it because they're in some youth facility with a burned out nursery worker. That's probably why VeggieTales and uh, those little animal crackers are selling by the boatload. Let's put a video on for these kids and give them some goldfish or something, right? But let's get back to Martha. Now, when it says that Martha was distracted, the sense is she's dragged away. She's being pulled away from being able to listen to Jesus like her sister. The implication here is that Martha wanted to be doing what Mary is doing. She wanted to desperately listen to Jesus teach, but she's being pulled away by her other duties. She's got too much stuff to do to entertain all of these guests that have just arrived at her doorstep. And so as Martha is looking at the situation, inside, she's starting to smolder, right? She's looking at Mary sitting there, and she's looking at Jesus teaching. She wants to be able to listen too. She sees all these disciples sitting around and all this work that she's got to be doing to entertain them. And inside of her, a volcano is about to erupt. Mount Krakatoa is going to burst forth, right? She's distracted by her work. She's starting to feel self-pity, and then she gets resentful. I mean, picture if you would the glares that she must have given Mary as she walked by, right? Think about, she's probably in the kitchen and clanging those pots and those utensils just a little louder, just so Mary might hear and get a clue that you need to get off your duff and come help me, right? She might have just been just making all kinds of noise and wiping sweat off her brow and just trying to make a scene to get Mary's attention, maybe clearing her throat, throat) you know, a couple times to say, hey, Mary, yo, Give me a hand here, right? But Mary only had eyes and ears for Jesus Christ. You would have thought that this being her sister, that she would have just simply said, Hey Mary, can you give me a quick hand? Mary, could you help me out in the kitchen for just a second? But she doesn't do that. But instead, she goes to Jesus. She complains to him. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Now, why did she do that? Why did she go to Jesus instead of just asking Mary for help? This is her sister. This is her kinsman. Could it have been an issue of pride? Could it have been that Martha wanted everyone in the house to notice that she was doing all the work? Could it have been that she wanted to tout her service before Jesus and all of her guests so that she might be highly esteemed? Don't we do this amongst ourselves, though? Don't we think that what we are doing is the most important thing and that everyone else should be doing the same? Don't we think that the concerns that we have should be everyone else's concerns? Don't we not typically look at one another from the high ground and think to ourselves, if you were as spiritually mature as I was, you'd be in a better place. 
If you were doing the things that I was doing and concerned with the things that I was concerned about, you would be as committed as I am. How quickly self-righteousness and pride creeps into our hearts. And for Martha, in one minute, she's welcoming Jesus into her home. The next minute, she's busy in the kitchen. And then the next minute, she's making a scene in the living room. So Martha asked Jesus to intervene and have Mary help her. Now the request, it doesn't seem that unreasonable, does it? Asking for a little help doesn't seem to be that out of place. But the request is a little accusatory to Jesus. It's directed to him in a way that says, don't you care? Don't you have any appreciation for what I'm doing, Jesus? I've done that. I remember my daughter got diabetes. Broke my heart. And I was like, Lord, don't you know I'm trying to be a pastor? Don't you know what I'm doing for you? Don't you know I'm going to seminary? What is going on here? What was that? It was pride. It was my self-righteousness. I'm doing this stuff for you. You should be just blessing me in return. But pride wells up in our hearts so quickly. Jesus, knowing what was in the heart of man, or in this case, the heart of a woman, didn't see her request as unreasonable. And He gives her a gentle and loving correction. In verses 41 and 42, it says, But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And we need to note a couple of things here. First of all, Jesus didn't take sides. Jesus loved Martha as much as He loved Mary. He didn't tell Mary, hey, get up and help your sister. He didn't even tell Martha that she needed to stop what she was doing. Because in all honesty, it wasn't that he disapproved of what Martha was doing. Showing hospitality is a good thing. Serving people is a good thing. But there is a better thing which Martha was lacking. There was an eternal thing which Martha was missing. And that was listening to the Word of God as they came through the lips of Jesus and letting that drive the motives of her heart. Now, as I mentioned before, when we read this, it seems to be putting that quietism versus activism that I talked about. It seems to be advocating for one extreme over the other and the people of Martha and Mary, with Mary being the favored one in the story and thus a cherished person by those who are quietists. Quietism is basically an intellectual stillness. It's a reflective contemplation. The modern-day mantra, which you've probably heard, is let go and let God, or just sit and soak like Mary. A quietist would say that if you are striving to produce fruit or good works, that you're basically, you are unproductive and it's unscriptural. Quietism seems to be mystical and subjective, and it focuses on your feelings. How does it make you feel? Experience is a barometer as to whether you're living faithfully to God. Hannah Whitehall Smith's book, The Christian Secret to the Happy Life, is a book on quietism. Quietism says that God's totally responsible for my personal holiness. I don't need to do anything but just love Jesus, and I don't want to talk about theology or doctrine or what you believe about God. I just want to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary. Now, the other extreme is activism. 
Activism is probably a little easy for us to understand because we're familiar with terms like a political activist or things of that nature. But activism is the thought that we need to do everything or else God's not going to be able to do anything. We need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't really need divine help, but we just need to get out there and go win one for the Gipper, right? And the activist would appeal to the story of the Good Samaritan and say, we need to advance the cause of social justice and economic equality and wealth redistribution and all those things. And so you've got these two extremes right here that people rip from the text. But I think that's why Luke put this account here. This is why this little vignette is right after the Good Samaritan. Our actions and our things we do and the things that we get involved in need to be informed by the Word of God. There is a hierarchy or an order in our lives that we continually get out of whack, and that is first we need to read and know and study the Word of God and then put what we read into action. Jesus said in Luke 6.47 that a genuine disciple is one who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. In Luke 8.21, Jesus said that his spiritual brethren are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 11.28, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Loving your neighbor, like the Samaritan in the story, is preceded by a love for God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your orthopraxy, or the things that you practice and do, is preceded by your orthopraxy, or the things that you believe. Just like your mouth speaks because of what's in your heart. Our highest priority for believers is to know and read and understand the Word of God, and that let that drive everything else that we do. Don Whitney, who wrote The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, said this, quote, No spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's Word. Nothing can substitute for it. There is simply no healthy Christian life apart from a regular diet of milk and meat of Scripture. And the reason is obvious. In the Bible, God tells us about Himself, especially about Jesus. The Bible unfolds the law of God and shows how we've broken it. In the Bible, we learn about the will and the ways of the Lord. We find in Scripture how to live in a way that is pleasing to God, as well as the best and most fulfilling way for ourselves. None of this eternally essential information can be found anywhere but the Bible. Therefore, if we would know God and be godly, We must know the Word of God intimately. So this morning, I want to ask you, are you devout or are you distracted? Are you living for bread or are you living for the bread of life? Are you spending so much time on your physical cares that you are neglecting the care of your nurture of your soul? What is the greatest thing that you think you need in life? Is it fame? Is it money? Is it possessions? Is it honor? Is it your own personal empire? Those things are fading away, and they will never, ever last. The only thing that you need is Jesus Christ, because He will be all you need for this life and the life to come. 
and He will be more than enough. In His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our lives can so easily be entangled with things that don't matter eternally. So as a church this morning, let us resolve today to delight in the holy word of God, to know him more intimately, to cast off those things which are preventing us from running the race that is laid out before us, and let us worship God in spirit and truth. Let's pray. God, we confess to you that we haven't been as faithful in knowing you as deeply as we should. We have let so many things entangle us and weigh us down and hold us back and even draw us away from you. God, I just pray that we would be resolved that we would discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That we would know you through your word and be conformed into the image of Christ. That we might press on and run this race in such a way that we might win the prize. God, just give us the strength to do so. Let us be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the works of the Lord. God, we just pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.